Good morning, everyone. Great to have you with us. My name's Danny, if you don't know me, or Dan, whoever you want to call me, really. And it's great to have you with us. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to bring in God's Word to us this morning. We're continuing this series, Sent, uh, from the book of Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 12 this morning, so open up your Bibles there. And we're going to read the whole chapter, Acts chapter 12. We're going to go through the whole book of Acts, and we're going to continue through it as we lead into August, which is traditionally our Mission Fest month, so we're going to be hearing from some of the people we support who do mission outside of our kind of area of influence, and then we're going to be doing a small little series, and then we're going to go into the book of Ecclesiastes after that. So that's pretty much the year in terms of preaching. But for today, Acts chapter 12, the whole chapter and I'm reading from the ESV. It'll be on the screen for you if you're visiting or new and you maybe don't have a Bible with you. That's cool. It's just here on the screen. Let's read together. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, he was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, no, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went on to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, 
He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we see here that twice you strike people uh, through the work of your angel. One led to uh, salvation and rescue and goodness and life, and the other to being eaten by worms and death. And in some sense, we want to pray with you that you would strike us this morning. May we be struck by your wonder and your power and your glory and your majesty that we might come to you and receive salvation and be rescued and uh, enjoy freedom and life forever. So please be powerfully at work uh, in us this morning uh, for our good and for your glory. And We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, a few years ago, I got, I got invited to, one, uh, to a boys' night at one of the blokes' houses, and um, we had some beautiful food. I'm pretty sure it was only meat. Um, you know, it was like ribs, and we had chicken wings, and I think there was some biltong or jerky or something along those lines. Uh, we also had some really special drinks that we tasted and discussed, and it was just a ripper of a night, something that they used to do quite often, but I had the privilege of being invited once. And you'll probably tell now why I was only invited once. But anyway, just as I start, I'm just, I just want to say I'm not a gambling man, and I don't approve of it at all. This was a, uh, an event that was really godly. Uh, the things didn't get out of hand, and no one's families were suffering as a result of it. It was all just kind of a bit of a, um, a fun night. But anyway, what they also did, despite all the eating and whatnot, is they played a game of poker. And I'd never played poker in my life. I'm really still not interested in it. Uh, and I never have been. And so they explained it to me, and I remember getting, going on my phone and Googling poker, and there was this picture that I found with what sort of hands you can get and, and why they're good and so on. And I had that in front of me the whole night, try to work things out. And, and you know how you get a good hand, and, and you know it's strong, and, and then you put more chips in the middle because you think your chances of winning are better? And you get bad hands too um, that's weak, and you kind of just fold and say, I'll sit out this round. And so every time we got our cards, you know, people would go, oh, how's your hand? How's your hand? And, um, you know, I would, I would have no idea what's going on. And so pretty much every time I said, no, this is shocking. I don't know. And this is bad. I'm not going to lose. And <laughs> the problem is I had no idea what I was doing. And so often I would win rounds. And so the guy started saying, no, 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 this guy's got a poker face. He knows what he's doing. But it was just me just really not being interested, not knowing what's going on and just saying, uh, and going along. And so in my ignorance, I had no idea. And so they struggled to work out the strength of my hand. And, and probably because of that, I think, is why I never got invited back, because I was no good at poker. Now, this morning's passage is all about the strength of two hands. You've got the hand of King Jesus, and you've got the hand of King Herod. 
Remember way back in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen did this long and great speech that we looked at the whole thing. It was a huge reading and talk. And, um, and then he got stoned afterwards for it. And it said that a great persecution broke out uh, in, in the church and people were scattered everywhere. And at the end of Acts chapter 11, they pick up some of these followers and, and some of them have ended up in Antioch. And look at what it says. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord Jesus was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so here we see the hand of the Lord Jesus with the church. But at the beginning of our passage this morning, we also see an opposing hand. Look there at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And if you have an NIV version, it won't say the word hand there at all. I think they've botched the translation quite badly. But we've got this Herod laying hands on people to do harm. That's the the language of the text. And so all of a sudden, two hands are presented. And which one is the strongest? Which one, by the end, is really going to walk out victoriously? And by the end of today, you should not wonder about the hand of the Lord Jesus, like my friends were confused about my poker hand. Um, it's, it should be crystal clear, because Jesus doesn't hold his cards close to his chest. He's just open about it and honest and transparent. And so this morning we will see the hand of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to see his hand in persecution and in prayer and in his purpose. So let's get into it. The, Lord, the hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution. Now, in the beginning of our story, the hand of Herod seems to be stronger than Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, From verse 1, Herod is laying hands on people within the church to harm them. Um, He has James, the brother of John, killed, uh, and and then he throws Peter into prison, and he he just wants to kind of give him a quick little um, public uh, and unfair trial, a bit what Jesus received, and then he's planning probably to kill him too. Uh, but it was the Passover, and so, you know, they've just had the Passover, and then they do seven days of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And the Jews didn't like when people were murdered during that time, and so Herod kind of didn't do anything with Peter at the time. But in the end, Jesus saves Peter from the hand of Herod. Have a look there at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, you know, after he realized, whoa, this is not a dream, it really happened, it's happened, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Jesus miraculously and powerfully rescues Peter from Herod's evil hands. And it was so amazing, this rescue, that the whole time it was happening, Peter thought he was dreaming, some sort of vision. And we'll talk about that a bit later, but for now, I think we need to wrestle with something. You see, Peter is obviously saved by Jesus in this amazing way. But, but what about James that was killed by the sword? You know, he probably had his head chopped off. So do you see the conundrum? Hey, Danny, you're saying the hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution. But we've got two guys here with two very different stories. Is Jesus' powerful and mighty hand only sometimes in control during persecution? You know, when James died, did did Jesus lose control Uh, and Herod was really in charge? You know, maybe he was on a lunch break or toilet break, maybe awkward. Um, Is that the case? Well, what we have to understand is just because James is killed, or it seems that those who are persecuting 
Christians have the upper hand, it doesn't mean that Jesus has lost control. I think we seem to think um, when, when things are not going swimmingly for us, when, when we're going through times of suffering or difficulty, we think that somehow Jesus has lost control. And then when things are going well and we, we're being blessed and life is easy, well then Jesus is in control again because it's going well with us. But that's simply not true. We see this really in the book of Job in the Old Testament. And we also see it in Jesus' own life. Think of um, the night before Jesus was crucified. He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And a bunch of soldiers were sent uh, to, to, um, to, to arrest him. And, and do you remember how one of Jesus' disciples pulled out his sword? He wants to fight these people. He wants to kind of take back control. But what does Jesus say? He says, put that sword away. And then he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Jesus is saying, do you think I've lost control? Really? Just because I'm being captured, do you think I've lost control? Don't worry, I'm in control. And, and, and do you remember when uh, Pilate, I love this scene, Pilate is questioning Jesus and Jesus kind of just gives him these like really small answers. You know, I, I think Jesus is purposely doing that because he doesn't want to stop his own death on the cross. He's, and, and, and Pilate doesn't like it. And he says to Jesus at one point, mate, I've got the authority to crucify you. Why don't you answer me properly? And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, you would have no authority over me unless, at all unless it had been given to you. Jesus is saying, Pilate, do you really think you're running the show? Do you? You can do nothing if it's not part of my Father's plan, says Jesus. And so Jesus hasn't lost control, even when it does, doesn't seem like it. And, and throughout this period, uh, in the lead up to the cross and during Jesus' crucifixion, uh, the gospel writers go through extraordinary lengths and measures to quote Scripture to show us that even though it seems that God has lost control, he really hasn't. He's in total control. And it's the same today when the church is being persecuted, whether it's in big ways or little ways. It's the same. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? Have a look at this. John 15 verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you. So when we get persecuted, we shouldn't go, oh, I think Jesus lost control. We should go, oh, yeah, we should expect this. That's what Jesus said. They persecuted Jesus and they will persecute you and me and his followers. And it won't always look the same as, as what we see here or even be as extreme as in other countries we hear all around the world. Um, but we will be persecuted. And when we are, it doesn't mean that Jesus has lost control. We need to have a, a balanced belief that kind of comforts us knowing that Jesus can rescue us any minute, but also a strong hope that he will help us endure if he doesn't. Now let me give you an example from the Bible. Uh, so have a look here, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, so do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? And he made this big statue and he's getting everyone to worship it. And Daniel and his friends, they say, no, we're not going to bow down before this. And he makes this huge fire. The people in this furnace that, 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 that kind of sets the fire ablaze, they die outside. That's how hot the thing is. And he wants to throw them in there. And this is what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand if he wants to, O king. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see what they're saying? Say, our God can deliver us from you and your fiery furnace that you want to throw us in. And, And if he wants to, he will. But if he doesn't, that danger of belief in him. We're going to keep trusting in him. We're not all of a sudden going to um, uh, worship you. Whether we live or whether we die, he's in control and we trust him. Now, as we, as we persecute it, uh, it's also worth remembering that Jesus takes it personally. When, you know, when we are hurt and harmed for his name, he takes it personally. Remember um, a few weeks ago, we were looking at Saul and he was persecuting the church. And what did Jesus say to him? Uh, And and I love um, this sermon that Tony did. He did a great sermon on that passage a few weeks ago. Jesus said said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, in other words, Jesus is personally involved and intimately involved in our suffering for his name. He's not some kind of distant third party that's unaffected. Neither is he simply like taking us and letting us take the shots that he should be getting. No, he, he, he's, he, he's with us. When you're hurt, he's hurt. When you're shouted at, he's shouted at. When you're laughed at, he's laughed at. When you're belittled, he's belittled. When you're mocked, he's mocked. And so on and so on. And one day, I love this image, one day we've got, we've got people who persecute us and then the, the persecuted, those who are being persecuted. And one day... The, those who persecute Christians won't stand before those they're persecuting. They're going to stand before Jesus, who's going to stand before his people, and they're going to have to give an account to every word they said, every look, every cut, and every life that was taken. And so we'll leave things in his hands when we persecute it, because he's personally involved and he is the judge of all. So that's the first point. The hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution is in complete control and he's personally and intimately involved. And he will judge those who persecute us on one day. And, and when, yeah, and so let's go to the second one. So the hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution. But have a look at this. The hand of the Lord Jesus in prayer. And this one has been my favorite part as I've been looking at this passage this week. One of the things that, that led to Peter being freed from prison um, is the prayers of the church. We, we have this kind of very dark and um, deflating start to our passage with James killed and Peter is thrown in prison. And, and you know what? Peter is properly in prison, if there is even such a thing. You know, um, Herod uh, hands him over to four squads of soldiers, um, or four guards of soldiers. One of these guards consisted of four soldiers, so a kind of a total of 16 soldiers to look after this one bloke. And during the night, um, what would happen is two people would stand at the, at the gate of the jail cell and two people would be sleeping next to the prisoner. Uh, and, and both of them would chain themselves to this prisoner. I was just, when I was reading it back this morning again, I thought that would be so annoying. Just imagine every time you move, <coughs> pull people's arms and whatnot. But anyway, that's the deal. So the guards were on either side of him and then there were two at the gate. And, and every three hours, one of these um, whole guards would come out and another one would go in to make sure that they are fresh, that they um, are alert, and so that prisoners can't escape. 
and, and so that was kind of the, this kind of this whole setup, the picture that we have at the beginning. And not only are the guards and the gates, there's also this huge gate that locks the whole prison that separates it from the city where all the good people live. And so again, the image that we've got is King Herod's strong hand. He's flexing his muscle, isn't he? There's, 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 there's nothing this poor little church can do. No one can get out of that. But what the church does is, is they pray. Have a look at verse 5. So as Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And this little verse about the church praying is right after this hopeless situation that Peter is in and right before he is miraculously saved from the situation. So it's clear that the, the prayers of the church is a key in Peter's miraculous escape. And you know what's interesting? This is the bit that I've loved. These guys were imperfect prayers. They were imperfect prayers. And that's what I want to encourage you in today. To pray, even if you feel like you're not a great prayer. The hand of the Lord Jesus is not weakened by our imperfect prayers. His hand is strong, despite our weakest prayers, or our weak prayers. And and He will continue to work powerfully. So I want to show you the ordinary prayers or prayers the church was. Have a, have a think about it. It does seem that, uh, you know, if, if, even in some sense it's a bit negative to say they were imperfect prayers. I think what is, what is worth saying is that even though they didn't pray perfectly, they prayed persistently. And I think that's key for us. We see them praying in verse 5 when Peter was thrown into jail, and then in verse 12 when Peter is released from the prison in the middle of the night and everyone seems to be sleeping, this little church is in Mary's house and they're praying. You think, gee, did I ever stop? Like they're praying persistently. And just a little note on the side there, as you notice there in the text, Mary is Mark's mother. You know Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark? So he has a personal relationship with Peter and later Paul, as we see in the passage as well. So I think he's pretty fit to write a Gospel about Jesus' life as he personally knew eyewitnesses of Jesus. But anyway, have a, have a read of, from verse 13 with me. When Peter was knocking at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I love in the Bible how they write when Christians do silly things. They don't try and cut that out to make us look better. I think this is one of those moments. And, and they said to Rhoda as she comes out, instead of just letting Peter in to prove They said, you're out of your mind. And and their response, you're out of your mind, I think shows us that they probably thought that there's no way that God can get Peter out of prison. You know, so let's not even bother praying for that. Or, Or maybe they did ask. Maybe it's unfair of me to say that. Maybe they did ask God to let Peter out of the prison. But it seems that they probably thought that he couldn't really do it. I mean, they've seen the soldiers, they've seen the chains, they've seen the jail cells, uh, you know, they've seen the huge iron gate that the prison is in, they've seen Herod's powerful hand. And so they probably prayed, believing uh, that Peter will definitely be killed, that he would, and when they prayed, they just prayed, God, would you help him die an honorable death, help him just to keep having faith in Jesus, even when it's hard, even when they maybe torture and kill him. And that's why when Rhoda kept insisting, hey, no, no, at the gate, they said, hey, hey, it's his angel. 
They're thinking Peter's already dead. Hey, look, we knew that God wasn't going to save him. We knew he would die. He won't escape prison. And now his spirit is around because he, he has finally been killed. Now, friends, we pray the same as this, don't we? We pray little prayers. We pray little prayers before, because we think God is not big enough to handle our big prayers. Or, or, we, pay, or we pray big. Oh, I pray this big prayer. But in the back of our minds we think, there's no way God's can, God can do that. But hey, you know, I, I sound really godly when I say these things. Um, or another thing we do is we pray little prayers, I think, after we play God. Have you ever done this? Uh, so you... you you want to pray something and you think, but you know, we are in Australia and so God doesn't really do you know, impressive things here anymore. And maybe he's not as passionate about me, you know, about this thing. And uh, you know what, really, if, it was, if you were really wise, you probably won't do this, but you'll probably do this and then that and, and so on and so on. And so we make decisions for God and we pray little prayers because we've already worked out what he wants, what he's able to do and you know, kind of what his priorities are. And what we should do instead is we, need to, we should pray huge prayers because we have a huge God. We often say these small prayers, and, and the picture I have is almost that we're trying to take this huge God and squeeze him into these little prayers, when in fact we should pray huge prayers that actually encompasses our God and all of his power and his might and his wisdom and his knowledge. We want to pray big because he's big. And if he doesn't answer our big prayers, or maybe he answers them in smaller ways, we say, You're, you are all wise, you are all knowing, you are all powerful, holy and righteous are you, Jesus. We trust you, and we're going to keep praying big. I think that's what we should do. Maybe, just maybe, maybe we don't see God doing things that we're amazed at because we're praying little prayers. Don't you think? Uh, but I think um, de- de- that's definitely true of me, and that's what I was really convicted of this week as I reflected on this. And, and I, I'm kind of thinking, man, I'm ashamed of the little prayers that I pray. So often it's just around the dinner table, and thank you, God, for the food and help. So, hey, keep quiet. We're praying. And, you know, like, it's just so small, and it seems so insignificant. And I want to continue praying that way, because Jesus says, and God says, I want to hear everything from you. But I also want to pray big. And I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to do the same. Why not start by coming to our prayer meeting next Monday from 7.30? Let's, let's pray big. Not just arrive in big numbers. That would be a good start as well. More than the 20 or 30 people we often get. But let's, let's gather in big numbers and pray big together. And God will do amazing things. Now, we might pray bigger and better starting today, you know, because of what we've heard, but we'll never pray perfectly, and that's okay. The good news is that our kind of low-aiming, small-thinking, little-hoping prayers uh, will not bring down the mighty hand of the Lord Jesus. So we aim to do better, and we continue to pray, um, but we do this in honor of Jesus, and, and, and I'll show you something else in the end as well. Uh, that he kind of connects us with himself and with his work as we pray. So be persistent and pray big because we have a big God who loves to amaze us. Okay, so that's the second thing. We see the hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution, 
in prayer, and then thirdly and lastly, in his purpose. Now it's crystal clear that the Lord, his hand is powerfully at work in seeing his purposes come to reality. And we've seen this all throughout Acts. We see it again and again, and we see it again in our passage. Have a look there at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. We've seen this regularly, how kind of through adversity, the church continues to grow and the message of the gospel continues to spread. And it's no different here. And it's the result of just Jesus doing some really powerful things. He's, he's, he's showing his powerful hand. The whole passage just kind of oozes with power. You know, you've got a Herod's power at the beginning and then Jesus' power trumping his. You know, we, we see Jesus kind of simply making chains fall off of Peter that Herod put on there. They simply get out of jail and they, they waltz past these guards, you know, the fresh ones, because they change every three hours. They just kind of waltz past them. And when they get to the big iron gate, it just opens by itself. It's amazing. I mean, this is like watching something out of a Harry Potter movie, right? <laughs> I wonder if the, the, if the angel was just walking around with one of those wands and saying these things. But I don't think he was. This is just the Lord Jesus working. And no wonder Peter thought he was dreaming uh, for the most part of it. And no wonder there was like a huge ruckus the next day when they're trying to work out what in the world has happened to Peter. How did he escape? It's humanly impossible. And then lastly, Jesus also shows his power when he strikes down Herod himself. So behold the powerful hand of the Lord Jesus in working out his purposes. Nothing can stop him. (laughs) People have tried and people continue to try. But what I want to focus on, because we've seen this so much, is I want to focus on how Jesus does this, how he does it, and how it's so different to all others. You know, one thing we clearly see is that Jesus is clearly contrasted with Herod. Both are kings, both have power, both have purpose, and both have a way to achieve their purposes, and they're radically different. I don't know if you noticed that. Let's start with Herod. His purpose is power and position. He was a ruler under the Roman emperor, and he had to keep pleasing him if he wanted to keep that position, and, and especially he needed, to, he needed to keep pleasing the people in his jurisdiction so that they can keep voting for him and don't say bad things over to the emperor so that he's removed. And we see in verses 1 to 2 that Herod was a violent man. And if you go read the history books, him and his whole family was violent. His dad was the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. His dad or his granddad, I can't remember. Uh, and, and, you know, and so he's even James. And we're not giving any reason for why he's killing James. And I, my guess is it's because there isn't a good reason. You just do it because you want to. You're in control. And, and, and then what he sees is that the Jews were pleased by this. And so he goes, well, this is cool. I'll arrest another one and I'm going to kill him too. And we see here that Herod is a people pleaser. And he's a people user. He always needs to please people. And he does this by using people, even if it means killing them. He doesn't matter. It doesn't, he doesn't bother him. In one chapter alone, as we've read this chapter, he has violently harmed people um, and, and he's killed some of them. It's crazy. In one chapter, um, he's killed 17 people. 16 of them are some of his own people. Not to mention that he's got this biff with Tyre and Sidon. They're angry and at odds in this conflict and 
there's tension. His hands are full of blood, the blood of others for his own personal gain. Now, now let's think about Jesus, the one who is being compared to. His purpose is to witness to all people about the good news that he's done everything for them to become part of God's heavenly and eternal kingdom. He has dealt with all of their rebellion, all of their rejection, all of their running away. And he is coming to to bring us close to God again, clothing us in his perfect righteousness. That's what he wants all of us to witness to. And Jesus isn't self-centered like Herod, but he's thinking of others. And he fulfills his purpose not by killing others like Herod did, but by letting himself be killed by his own sacrifice. I mean, you just have to compare their hands. The hands of Jesus have holes in them. He took the nails that we deserved. He hanged on the cross in our place. He died so that we might have life forever. You see, Jesus doesn't use us for his own needs. I think this is the beautiful thing that's dawned on me. My Jesus, he has no needs. And so he doesn't need me to believe in him so that he can be fulfilled or or use me and abuse me to achieve things that's going to please him and make him happy. He's, he's, He's got everything he needs. And so he uses everything that's at his disposal to meet the needs of others. He's the perfect guy that you want to be friends with. You can be assured that the hand of King Jesus will never abuse you for his own gain, unlike Herod and every other human being. Now, I wonder if you're here this morning and you've never heard this. I wonder if, you've, if you know how much Jesus loves you. I wonder if you know that nothing stops him from achieving his purposes. And that's why nothing could stop him going to the cross. And if he has his sights set on you as one of God's children that needs to be brought home, nothing's going to stop him from doing that. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're hearing his call. You're hearing him to come home, to come to the family table, to be clothed in the family robes, to, to receive the inheritance of the Father and to enjoy that forever. If that's you, maybe you're hearing that this morning, why not respond? Why not say yes? Yes, I want to do that. And if you do today, or any other day for that matter, please come and share that with me. Or the person next to you, we all love hearing of Jesus working out his purposes in our lives and the lives of others. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, Do you see what a good king we have? Do you see what a good king we have in Jesus? He he fights for those who can't fight for themselves. He he rescues us from evil schemes uh, and empowers us to endure them. He opposes oppression and justice. I think there's a sense in which he knocks Herod down, not just because he doesn't give him glory, but he's treating these other little cities like rubbish. And he steps in. He uses his mighty hand against the evil powers of the day until one day he will throw them all into hell where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. You see, Herod being destroyed by worms is is a picture, a small little glimpse of what's going to happen to those who oppose Jesus one day. 
And, and, and even in that, you see so much grace. You see Jesus striking Herod down. He gives him some sort of tummy thing or some that involved worms. And during that time, surely he should have gone, hey, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I could rethink this. But he doesn't, and so he eventually dies. But even in that, there's so much grace of Jesus. And it fills me with confidence, fills me with boldness and comfort. And I hope it does for you too. We've got a great Jesus. Now, we've got these three things. Um, Lucas, I don't know if you can maybe flick back to the one where all three of them are on there. This is a last-minute thought that I had. Um, But what we see is the hand of the Lord Jesus in persecution, in prayer, and in his purposes. And I don't know if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm just, I wish I was more, you know, drawn to Jesus' purpose. I'm not bursting out of my skin to go, yeah, I want to do that. And I think what we see here today is is these three things come together really beautifully because it is as we're persecuted, as we suffer for the gospel of Jesus, not just in persecution, but in things like what Tony was saying, giving sacrificially to the work of the gospel. As we suffer when we serve in kids' ministry or other areas, as we suffer for the gospel of Jesus, uh, we are somehow knitted to him. It's a bit, I was thinking of, um, you know, when, when you're a kid, you just don't appreciate what your parents are doing for you at all. You just don't have a, a clue what they're doing for you. And then you become a parent and you go, oh my goodness, they gave up so much for me. All these sleepless nights, all these things. And in your suffering as a parent, you realize how much your parents suffered for you. And that's what we have with Jesus. As we suffer for the gospel, we realize how much more he suffered for us, how much he loves us, what he gave up for us. And what a love he had for me, because as I'm, I'm being treated badly by these people who hate my guts, I hated his guts, and he still loved me to death. Oh, you know, so as we suffer for the gospel, we are knitted together to him. But also think about prayer. As we pray, not these little prayers that we want to pray, but, but push our prayers and expand them as we look at the Bible, and we think, wow, like, well, how big is God? How big is he so that I can shape my prayers to that? What does he actually desire? What, what gives him joy? As you think about all those things to shape your prayers, you, you, you start being shaped yourself. I think it's Tim Keller that says, when we pray, we don't do it to change God. It changes us. And so we, we have our desires renewed and refocused. And then all of a sudden, we are wholeheartedly onto this. We want to be part of his purposes as he just keeps powering on and fulfilling them. So I want to encourage you to do that. Suffer for the gospel. Pray. I was thinking of Paul even when a bit later in Acts. He preaches the gospel. They stone him to death, they thought. They thought, this guy's dead. Let's throw him out of the city. And as Christians gather around him, I think to try and work out the funeral details, who's going to get the coffin, when are we going to do what? He stands up. And does he give up on Jesus? He doesn't. He has a good nap, and the next day he goes to the next town and he preaches the gospel. Because in his suffering and through his prayers, he's united to Jesus and his purpose, and nothing can stop him because he's, a, he's linked with, that, with the hand of the Lord Jesus. That's whose hand he's holding. Let's pray, and then we're going to partake in communion. Lord Jesus, wow, you have a mighty hand. In persecution, in prayer and in purpose. And Lord, we we don't have to suffer. We don't have to pray like all of us can drop dead today. 
and you will still continue to fulfill your plans and purposes. But we have this great privilege to do so. And so I pray that you would help us as we suffer for you, whether it's at the hands of others or just as we're looking to be sacrificial and serving and and making costly decisions. Help us in those times to be knitted together to you that we would realize what you have done for us, that would give us a deep joy. Uh, Just like the people at the beginning of Acts when they were persecuting and they all get together and they're praising you that they got to suffer for your name. We want to be like that, Lord. We want to rejoice in suffering for the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us in prayer. Uh, No one prays perfectly, and we will never pray perfectly, but help us to be a people that prays persistently. And help us to pray big. We've seen something of your magnitude and your beauty and your, your majesty today. We've sung so many songs about it. May it also affect our prayer life. Gather us next Monday, and even gather us tonight in our homes Lead us in praying bigger and answer our prayers mightily, we pray. And Lord, help us that we might have a renewed heart for your purpose as you continue to fulfill it and work it out. Um, It's just a joy to see the word advancing and multiplying and the church growing, not just here, but elsewhere in the world as it did in the book of Acts. May we rejoice in that. May we hold hands with you through life as we do this together. We pray this in your name. Oh,